Well, it's good to see each of you this morning, and let me add my welcome as well. And uh, to those of you that are watching by live stream, we're glad to have you with us too, including those uh, that are in uh, the room behind us. I think uh, this may be another high water mark as far as uh, those of us on campus, but nothing at all to compare with last week, which uh, is where I should start with a heartfelt thank you uh, to each of you that helped us do that, um, be that setting out chairs or driving golf carts or uh, preparing for the communion or uh, just being there yourself. Uh, sitting down right before we began, uh, I confessed to the person I was seated next to that I'm among those labeled as uh, those with little faith. I did not expect to see what I was looking at. Uh, but it, the, it, folks just kept coming and coming and coming. And um, I think before it was said and done, we had 340 in person. And then we had another 80 connections over the live stream. Uh, if you count those by two the way we're supposed to, that puts us at 500. So uh, who do we thank for that? The Lord, our risen Savior, who gave us a beautiful day uh, to remember His resurrection. So again, shame on me, at least, uh, for the small faith but thank you so much for making that a, a, a wonderful day. What we do from here on is uh, negotiate, uh, again, uh, I guess uh, some optimistically might, might say a, a walk in the park. Others, a gauntlet of uh, how to behave ourselves uh, in the end stages of what's been called a pandemic. But we need to get back to normal at some point. We do that the same way we've gotten to where we are today, by treating our neighbors with kindness and love, being careful, and uh, doing what's in the best interest of others, while maintaining faithfulness to God's Word and His uh, call on our lives, His great commission. All these things together, um, kind of as we signed off that one week when we addressed some of these things, I've never been more optimistic. But that doesn't mean that all the anxiety is gone, right? So I uh, just wanted to say we appreciate your hard work and your faithfulness. And uh, the future looks good. What we'll do today is uh, open our Bibles again to John chapter 20. We've got a few more messages left before we close out this gospel we've been working on. This will take us right up into uh, Memorial Day weekend. And uh, this morning we are in verse 19 through 23, a shorter paragraph than we've been used to. Last week was 18 verses. It's just five today. Doesn't mean we'll get through these five any uh, quicker than we got through those 18. I've always tried to look at that and try to guess. I'm always wrong. But look at this in verse 19. We'll read this together and then we'll ask the Lord to help us understand and obey it. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let us have ears to hear this word of the Lord and let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for another Sunday, this time under the roof known as our gathering place, the church. But Lord, as your body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we together ask that you meet us here, that you teach us from these verses we just read, something we need to know 
to be less like ourselves, more like you, and better fit for your kingdom. Lord, we ask help in the things we mentioned, navigating from here to next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. Lord, would you go before us, give us wisdom, give us patience, give us courage, give us what we need to be of help to others in your great commission and in encouragement for one another. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's just go through these as we are accustomed to, one verse at a time, phrase by phrase, try to understand what's here, and then, having understood it, look at what there is uh, to see, what there is to obey, what there is to take home, to give to others. The first words here, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, provides yet another time stamp. John's very meticulous in in sorting each step as he narrates these events. So last week we studied what happened early Easter Sunday morning. Today we study what happened Easter Sunday evening. It's the same day. You see it right there. On the evening of that day, which was the first day of the week. Now if we were looking at other Gospels, there's some things in between. uh, Like the road to Emmaus that took place in the middle of Easter Sunday. Um, we're thinking, this would be speculation, we're not told, uh, that this took place in the upper room. That would make sense. Um, It's not said that way, so we can't say for sure, but it's a good choice. And it's obvious that it was a private place where the doors were locked and these disciples were gathered, not a public place, not an open place. And while the other gospel writers don't give us many specifics, they do tell us that it's likely there were other people involved, if it's the same setting, than just the ten. And when I say ten, that would be the twelve minus Judas, who's dead, and Thomas, who's not there. We find that out in the next paragraph. Question to ask at this point is what brought these men back together, because... Friday night they all scattered and as they saw the events of the evening unfold the things that made most sense to them falling apart uh, they each went their own way the exception of John's eyewitness account close to the things that were taking place but they weren't together Peter and John have been seen together that morning but I suppose the best way to answer this question is because there are rumors that this man is alive. There are women that have seen him. There are men that have walked with him to Emmaus. Perhaps they're there. Uh, there's Peter and John. We have an account where Peter was met with privately. So no doubt they're discussing these things. But behind a locked door. And we have uh, a reason to understand why the doors were locked. He gives us that. For fear of the Jews. That makes sense. On a human level. Their leader had been executed. The same men who orchestrated that. If they wanted. Could pick these men off easily enough. They decided to do so. So. They locked the door. Huddled together. Um, But the function of the locked door. In this story. As John is telling it seems to highlight not so much their fear, but the miraculous nature of how Jesus shows up on the scene, Um, kind of thinking backward toward his ability to move through the grave clothes and leave those undisturbed. It looks as if now he has supernaturally moved through a door that was locked, and he's standing there uh, in their midst. Same with eight days later, when Thomas is present, the door's locked. And he'll do the same thing. So again, just as he passed through graves clothes, he's passed through a door. And what we're meant to understand is that this wasn't typical. The grave wasn't typical, and John believed. His uh, appearing to the disciples wasn't typical, and they see as much. On one level, 
as far as the greeting that Jesus gives, and we're kind of rushing through this, um, we'll fill in some of the blanks as we go. That greeting that we see from the lips of Jesus, peace be with you, is actually nothing special. If you've been on a trip to Israel, how many times have I said, if you've been on a trip to Israel in this study, if you've been on a trip to Israel, you've heard this said over and over and over again. Shalom Aleichem. They say it with hello. They say it with goodbye. They say it with your lunch, with your dinner, with your breakfast. They say it at the door. They say it at the cash register. Lots of cash registers. You know, I wonder if the Shalom Aleichem just adds to the whole thing designed to separate tourists from the money in their wallet. But they use this. That's what they do. It, it, and it means peace. Be to you. Now, what's happening here has to be different even in the common use of that word. Because what we've got here is Jesus standing there with them on the other side of tragedy, on the other side of agony, on the other side of horror, on the other side of darkness on the other side of everything that struck fear and trembling and horror into the minds and hearts and bodies of these men, that is all over. And he survived. He's standing there and he says to them, actually the last salutation he had said when they were together before it all began. In chapter 14, we use this in funerals a lot. If I go away, I'm going to prepare a place. I'll come back to receive you to where I am, where you, uh, I am, you may be always. And then he says, peace, I leave with you. Right? Not the peace that the world gives. Peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. So he said goodbye with peace. He says hello with peace be to you. So doubtless, these same words have never meant so much. Same as uh, Mary. How many times had she heard her name her whole life, but she hears it once from the risen Lord, and she knows He's no gardener, so it's Him. And the same will be true in a lot of different ways as He makes His appearances. And you could wrap into this, if you're trying to bottle up the emotion that's packed into this appearance what would you expect as a disciple who had forsaken your Lord, maybe even denied Him, but now you're looking at Him, what do you expect? Rebuke? Maybe even blame? He says, peace be with you. So when He had said this, and I'm sure that's probably the only words that have been spoken <laughs> He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So knowing that this is overwhelming to say the least, Jesus proves his appearance as their master risen from the dead by showing them his hands and his side. So again, he's dealing with their difficulty gently as we see him do. In every situation of difficulty, except for the cases where pride is, is so ingrown that he pushes back on them uh, sharply. In this case, it's very gently. And uh, if you're looking at this from a forensic background, almost anyone who'd been crucified could have shown their feet or their hands, except those who were tied to their crosses, if such a crucified victim came back as a ghost. You know, if we're just trying to explain what these men are seeing with their eyes. But no one, except for Jesus, could show his side. So there's no mistaking his identity here. And the word saw, where it says they were glad when they saw it was the Lord. Would you know that that is the same saw that John used to describe putting together all the details of the tomb and coming to the conclusion this man has risen from the dead and believed. 
This was the word from last week, the saw. Not the, not the ordinary word for seeing with your eyeballs, but seeing multiple things, recognizing their significance, adding it all up, putting it together, coming to a conclusion. That's the word that he uses here. So they get it. It makes sense. Hands, feet, side. It's Jesus. But I think I wrote this in the margin here. Let's take a time out. But because before we go to some instruction Jesus has with them, let's just pause and think of what we've got already on the plate. Who's ever heard of a God with wounds? You know, we believe in only one true God, but the world's got a host of them, right? We make movies about them, books about them, myths about them, mythologies about them. I don't know that I've ever heard of a God with wounds. In fact, if you're a God, you get to skip that part, right? You don't have to sit in a room with no air conditioning. You don't ever have to get cavities filled. You don't ever have to eat your vegetables. And you certainly don't have to go through crucifixion. Because you're important. And everybody else is not. But this God. This is the one at the end of the book. Who's described after a search for one worthy to open the scrolls. To open the worst the world has ever seen for the purpose of closing the books on this whole story. To bring about the end. And who's worthy to do it? A lamb as though he were slain. So Jesus is not just showing them the evidence of his identity. He's showing him the credentials of his authority. The purchased price of forgiveness. A God with wounds. Scars. No one makes that up. There's no such thing. There's, there's no precedent for this. Almost too wondrous to be true. Standing there in the flesh. In a glorified body. So let's make sure we get the details right here. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again. Peace be with you. This is the second time. As if to uh, you know, s- s- restart the record. Uh, shock and all the jaws are open. All right, there's some information to give you men. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And this is also huge. This is one of those places where John is, is bringing into place many of the arguments that have been mounting since the beginning of the story as he's told it. How many times has John told us through the narration of the story, that Jesus Christ is sent by the Father in heaven. He is the sent one. The Father is the sender. Over and over and over again, that's the way it works. He's been sent by God from heaven to earth to explain to us who God is, as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, as the suffering servant, all these things. Now... New information. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What can that mean? Well, it seems as if it's going to look quite similar, even though it can't be the same because we're not Jesus. And God is not Jesus like Jesus is God or the Holy Spirit, though they're all the same and that is mystery enough. But mystery of all mysteries, why in the world would Jesus employ the people to whom he just died or had to die for in the project or prospect, commission, work, fill in the blank, to carry it on out? I think of that. If we could have done this work, he would not have to have come, right? But he has come, and now he's going to leave it in our hands? Well, again, there's details. We've got to make sure we get this right. Christ's disciples were not simply to take over Jesus' ministry. 
It's still his ministry. So it would be wrong to think of them as replacing Jesus now that he's returning to his father. Okay, I've, I've, my ship's over. Your turn. See you later. And sometimes that works where, where we work. You wonder if one shift gives a hoot to the other shift. You know, hey, thanks a lot for leaving everything all to pieces. Your problem now. That's not the way this works at all. The apostles here are being commissioned to carry on Christ's work, not to begin a new one, and under his authority, not their own. Now we need the rest of the New Testament to fill in the theological details of such things. But look at verse 22. And he said this, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now if you're a good Bible student... You may be thinking, I thought that happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Flaming tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind. People thinking Peter and the apostles are drunk. but They're full of the Spirit. So if that's the giving of the Spirit, then what does it mean here of Jesus saying he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit? What is this, like some type of a soft opening? Or a, a private, uh, you know, disclosure, members only, before the public is given full access? Is this like pre-sale of tickets for season ticket holders? Or Not at all. But it's going to take some explaining. And would you know it that scholars argue over this? Are there two givings of the Holy Spirit? Or is this kind of a prelude to the only giving of the Spirit? And then some would think, well, there's different types of the giving of the Spirit. Because we've got other places in Acts where people didn't know certain things. And then the Spirit fell on them. Well, regardless of the conclusions of these scholars, virtually all of them agree that Jesus is speaking, at least to some extent, symbolically here. That even though he, for those who would think that the disciples get the Holy Spirit, he's still speaking of what's going to be happening on the day of Pentecost. No one, even the the most on the polar ends of these arguments, want to take the most wooden view that the Holy Spirit is no less than Jesus' expelled air. You know, they're not saying that the Holy Spirit came out of his nostrils or his mouth in the form of CO2 and oxygen. Most, most sense, makes most sense to see this Symbolic act as anticipatory of a future, but now imminent bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. The idea would be that Jesus is talking of something future, but now totally imminent. But in such a colorful way as to almost as if be enacting, maybe in parabolic form, what's going to happen later. In chapter 17, when the Greeks came looking for Jesus, he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Do you remember that? But did the Father actually glorify him in his presence as he was speaking in that moment? No. Then he goes on to talk about the hour had come. Had the hour come? No, it was days away. It was more than 60 minutes. But he was close. It was imminent. All the pieces are falling into place. Right? He'd been talking about that hour for a while and then almost like birth pains, more frequent and more intense. Pieces are falling into place. It would seem that this is the same. It's also very telling that there's not even the slightest hint of a change in these men after this encounter. A big change after Pentecost, right? Eight days later, they're still behind locked doors. And then when we get to the next chapter, Jesus is going to find a, a, a pile of them doing what? Preaching? 
fishing. I heard a message once, brilliantly delivered on the words, I go a fishing. That's Peter. Had nothing to do with a hobby. Had everything to do with, well, I just ruined the only thing I had going for me. So I'll go back and do what I did before. And then there's the whole scene on the beach where Jesus has to repair that broken man. Get to that a little later. That doesn't sound like men full of the Spirit. Doesn't sound like that courageous preaching. The power those men men had who would walk into the face of suffering and persecution and be happy for it when it came. That's the book of Acts. We'll get into that in the fall. That doesn't sound like what's going on here. So, if the disciples got the same thing here that everyone else got at Pentecost, why didn't they look like it? Again, we're arguing from positions in the text that aren't very clear, but it seems that the best interpretation would be that Jesus is telling them it's almost here. He'd been telling them before. How many times toward the end? The Holy Spirit's coming. I think this is one more time. And uh, the way John writes, think of this as the process of washing their feet. John was very colorful in the way he described that. What we're listening to is the story of him washing real dirt off real feet with real water, with a real towel around his waist, and their feet wind up at the end cleaner than they were at the beginning. But then there's this whole spiritual thing going on where these men's sins are going to be washed. But how does that take place? By a very real crucifixion and very real blood streaming from the veins of a very real man who's the very real God-man. So there was a process involved in that as well. Even though he's saying, hey, if I don't wash you, then you have no part in me. Well, that kind of meant you're not going to get anything out of this experience in the upper room. But it also meant, Peter, you've got to get this whole forgiveness thing. Or it's not going to work for you. You'll have no part in me. So there's a, a, a lot that's going on here. There's a lot going on there. And John has been giving us these anticipatory steps as he unfolds this story in linear fashion. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this last verse is the doozy as far as confusing Verses, especially in this little paragraph, because of the unusual construction of the words, especially the word you, directed at the men who are listening by the man who's speaking. Because what it sounds like is that they're given the capacity to say, you're forgiven and you're not. And you are and you are and you are, but not you or you or you. That's what it would sound like first reading. But we know that can't be true from other places in Scripture. Uh, we can move through a few of those, try to get behind it before we can get in front of it. The question here that we need to solve is who's doing the forgiving or the withholding of forgiveness? And we all should know, I'm going to make the assumption most of us would answer this correctly on a quiz... That the only one qualified to forgive sins is God himself. And we can also conclude from scripture that these men who are listening would know that to be true as well. Um, you remember the story? This would be in Matthew's, uh, no, Mark's gospel. Where uh, four loyal and energetic friends took their buddy to see Jesus tore off the roof let him down in front of Jesus uh, and asked that he be healed. He's paralyzed. And uh, Jesus takes or wastes no teaching moment and he says, your sins are forgiven. 
And then everybody in the room goes, wait just a minute. We all know that the only person that can do the forgiving uh, around here and anywhere is God. Jesus knows this and he says, all right, you tell me which is easier. Say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. Now, you wonder if he's... Especially these days where words are so important and people wear their offenses on their shoulders, it seems. You've you got to watch how you interact with people. But I would think that would draw the you're messing with me card. Because for the guys standing there, they can't do either one. None of them can make this man walk and none of them can forgive his sins. Now, the sin forgiving part, nobody can see that, right? So you can act that way, and we've probably all been aware of or maybe part of or seen ministries where they simplify the gospel down to the easiest thing that nobody would ever refuse. They ask questions like, you want to go to hell? No. You want to go to heaven? Yes. Say these words, we'll get you down, we'll baptize you, you're good to go. And the rest of us are screaming, that's not enough. You didn't mention repentance. You didn't mention sin. You, you, you didn't mention taking up a cross. You, you, that's not enough. But because nobody can see in the heart, and because everybody can see when someone's happy, wear it on their face. Oh, we could process Christians like people process whatever, right? Business. Big bucks. And there are even some, if you've got a slick group of people that can make it look right on TV, you can bring in the right folks who get real excited uh, and you can make them look like they're healed. But really, we know that doesn't work or they'd go to the hospitals and do it, right? So this completely wrecks a lot of the foolishness that goes on. But these guys, they couldn't produce either. So Jesus says, here's what I'll do. I'll just heal the man, which you can't do, to show you that I've got what you don't have so that you can believe I can actually forgive him of his sins too. But he holds that. He's the only one who, who can forgive or withhold forgiveness, right? We know that from Scripture. So that's the first step, and that's off the table. But then again, the... The principle of that kind of works in the way that we operate on a daily basis as far as forgiveness and who can do it and who can't. If you're going to forgive somebody for something, you kind of have to be involved in the whole uh, offense in the first place, right? I mean, you can test this anytime you want to. Wait for somebody to be involved in a, a, a crash on, on the road, you know, like a, a bumper you know, fender bender, rear end somebody. Happens all the time here, doesn't it? <laughs> Especially at certain times of the day. And uh, maybe, I don't know, between here and Holly Springs, when they put you down to one lane and uh, everybody's trying to get through there quickly. But here's what you do. You find one person's rear-ended the other and you get out of your car and say, I saw the whole thing, I just want to let you know, I forgive you. And they'll look at you like you've lost your mind. And they might say, oh, that's the guy I hit. I have no idea who you are. So why don't you get out of my way? You have to be involved in it. You have to be the offended before you can forgive the offender. Is that how that works? And if all sins are ultimately against God, then he's the only one who gets to say that. Correct? So these disciples having that ability, not themselves being forgiven, ultimately they could forgive each other for offenses between them, but not the ones that would have anything to do with their eternal security. And then that's only half of the whole ordeal. Because think of it this way. Can God forgive whoever he wants to Whenever he wants to. No. 
Because on his own holiness, he's bound by his own rules. Set up in the Garden of Eden. If you eat that fruit, you will surely die. So, fast forward the clock all the way past the cross. Yes, he can forgive, but on what means? The sinless blood of his own son who died in the place of those he now offers forgiveness. So there's a cost involved in order to forgive. Again, this actually works in the way that we operate. If you forgive someone... Don't you usually incur some form of cost? I mean, if you're a kid in a sandbox, somebody breaks your toy, you can forgive them for it, but you're still out of toy. Say you're an adult, someone breaks your toy, you can forgive them. It just costs a lot more. Right? Someone has wronged you, impugned your character. You can forgive them. But there's probably some remaining cost involved in that reputation. It'll never be the same. Scars involved. This kind of breaks down at a certain level because you could go back to the scene of the rear-ended fender bender on the road and say, you know what? I know you think that's strange that I forgive you, but I'm prepared to write a check and pay for the whole thing. Then you've probably got their attention. Okay, pay for it. But then at the end of the day, who gets the ticket? That's what you're not going to pull off. Officer, go ahead and write that ticket for me. Doesn't work that way. It can't. But in this case, it can. Do you see how that works? So, how do the disciples fit in all this? Well, God's choosing to forgive sinners has nothing to do with the disciples or our extending or withholding forgiveness as if we could create it because we can't pay for it. Jesus did. We can't. So, what we do, what this passage is referring to, is our announcing the fact that the payment has been paid and you can be forgiven, not on what we've done or you've done, but what on Jesus has already done. It's the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died to forgive those who sinned against him. So what Jesus is mentioning when he says, what you forgive is forgiven, what you withhold is withheld, he's saying, as you preach the gospel as I've given it to you, The double-edged sword of the gospel as it goes out will divide those in groups of forgiven and unforgiven based on what they do with the truth of that gospel. It's no more complicated than that. As the Father had delegated all authority to Jesus, so he now dispatches the disciples under that same authority. He was not calling them to a soft and easy prospect. His wounds were the insignia of his authority, of the cost of the transaction, and the completed paid in full. So I guess the question would be, does the church still have this authority to pronounce sins forgiven? Well, it depends on how you put it. But inasmuch as the church holds fast to the gospel of Jesus, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe this? If the answer is yes, your sins are forgiven. Any man, woman, or child who repents of their sins, calls on the name of Jesus, and is saved not by what we say, but what this book says, we can say to them, you're forgiven. Not by me, but by him. It's the report of good news. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, the church still has this authority. So what is our principal assignment? Well, 
we're going to find out as we move into the book of Acts that what Jesus had said to his men, his men are going to say to other men who are going to say that to other men and we each are involved in the same great commission to do the very same thing, to preach forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death and resurrection have made that forgiveness possible. So how do we do this best? And this is where we're looking at a narrative and we need to understand it first uh, in terms of what it meant to these men. Because if we can't understand that, then we don't understand how it could apply or lend implications to how we should behave. We've spent all the time up until now answering that question. How did they see it? So how should we see it? What do we take home with us? Well, this is one of those places where you've got to be careful in making a point from this passage to make a point elsewhere that you don't go so far from this passage that the point is rendered pointless, if you know what I mean. Maybe not. Sometimes I confuse myself. But I think some of the most helpful applications from a book mostly narrative, like the gospel according to John, is by connecting the dots as you move through the book. We're deep into John's gospel now. We're almost done. So, so much of the burden of developing the story and the arguments and the, the, uh, the acts in each of the scenes uh, is done. This is the point at which you really begin to enjoy the book, like you would enjoy any other good book, any other story, any of those shows that you like to watch that they would call binge-worthy. Why are they binge-worthy? Why are they good? Well, usually because they've done an adequate job in character development. You've become attached to the people, the players, the story itself. You relate to it. If you weren't it didn't relate to you. You wouldn't watch it. You'd turn the channel. Right? And then sometimes we want to think that we're so different than these people. That's why we like them. No, really what's going on is you're so much like them. That's why you like them. And in this case, we're seeing the personalities of these disciples really come together. We're learning more about John. More about Peter. And uh, in the weeks to come, we'll learn a lot more. And then in the book of Acts, we're already set up in the second volume of, of Luke's writings to really get attached to these men. But in this case, this idea of forgiveness, and, and I think there's more going on than just this isolated forgiveness or withholding forgiveness. We've already seen this play out many times. And one of the clearer pictures is actually from another gospel. It's from Matthew's gospel. And all of those f seem to fit together in certain points. John leaves a lot of that out. But there's a point where it's Peter who asks Jesus how many times he's supposed to forgive somebody that's wronged him, right? So if, if the Peter here is, is listening to words about forgiveness and he's to understand it and then hand it to others after commissioned by the one who was sent to earth by God himself to teach us what forgiveness is all about, ultimately and eternally, this is of importance to this man. But to start the whole record, he's the one who came to Jesus and said, all right, how's this supposed to work? And it's probably one of those situations that happens so often where Peter was quickly aware of the fact that he should have not asked that question. Because a parable ensues. And a good one at that. Where this king makes an assessment and there's folks that owe him money. One more than he could ever pay if he had his whole life to try. He forgives him. Just like that. But this guy goes out and chokes someone basically for lunch money. Servants come back and say, you'll never believe this. And then he lowers the boom. This is what you're supposed to do. 
This is what I mean by 70 times 7. It's not an, a, a mathematical question like a punch card at a restaurant. When you get them all punched, then write them off. That's not how this works at all. You never write them off. The words were, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That was kind of like lesson one with, with Peter. I don't know where lesson two was. There's probably a lot. But somewhere in there was another lesson. It was washing his feet. You'll never wash my feet. Well, if I don't, then you're out. Well, then wash all of me. Back and forth and back and forth. But it, it had to do with forgiveness. And then a couple of weeks we're going to see him asked after breakfast, come on over here with me. we got some things to talk about. And reconciliation is, is the whole thing. You know, work through that denying him three times. Patch all that up. So what's the point here? It's interesting that, that of all the ways Jesus could have told these men, here's how you're going to carry on when I'm gone. You'll have all the authority. You'll do greater things than I have. But I'm going to put it in terms like this. There's forgiven and there's unforgiven. And I hold the keys to all that. But that's basically your message. Your message is forgiveness. Reconciliation between you and the God you've offended with your sin. I stood in the gap, and now that is worked out. Open, clear access to the throne room of heaven. Now, this little parable here was just a piddling way to say this is what it might look like. Worst case on this planet. You have no clue what has been done for you, spiritually speaking. Here's the point. If the best applications are connecting the dots through the story, it may be said this way to these men who still have a lot to learn about forgiveness because the truth is you never look less like your Savior when you withhold forgiveness. Not because God can forgive whoever, whenever. No, there's rules to that. You have to actually be careful with the words, uh, you know, unfailing love. You know, there, there are limits to Christ's love at the cost of His blood, right? But with that in place, yes, He actually was willing to pay the cost involved in order to forgive. And that's where you never look less like your Savior. When He would go to the cross to forgive, but you wouldn't walk across the street to forgive. How could you make the gospel look any less inviting? Of what worth would it be for someone who doesn't know this, who comes in here and finds out that we're just a group of people tangled up in decades-long bad blood over the stupidest of things? Now, I'm not saying that that's where any of you are. But I've been in churches long enough that that's about how they're explained, right? No, where we make the gospel most attractive is where we take the slack where we eat the fallout where we pick up the tab where we leave it behind where we just forget about it to the extent possible because we know that Jesus did far more and that others opinion and perception of him might have to do with how good or how bad we are at the lunch money. Not the debt we could never pay. 
that might not be exactly what's packed around in this story, but I think the dots trace back. Our message is forgiveness, which is reconciliation between God and man. If we can't maintain reconciliation between our brothers and sisters, of what interest is that message to anyone else? This is why Peter was so colorfully corrected with this parable for basically saying, Lord, would you help me? I need to know how to fill out this scorecard. Jesus is basically going to get Peter to the place where he tears Peter's scorecard up. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's going to take it long with a guy like Peter. But boy, when he gets right, there's no stopping the testimony. Turn a forgiven man loose and he'll turn the world upside down. Now we've got that in the weeks to come. I think we've spent enough time at the table And uh, at least for me, the meal has been substantial. We're going to sing a song. There is a Redeemer. And it speaks of Jesus, God's Son. It speaks of being thankful for God sending that Son. It's going to speak of thankfulness for leaving the Spirit until the work of forgiveness done we're going to need that Holy Spirit because forgiveness for us is hard but we're thankful that forgiveness was easy for Jesus at the cost of his own blood Father in heaven we thank you for this truth from your word Lord help us to let go things that would get in the way of our usefulness in your work of reconciliation. Lord, we thank you for these men that weren't superheroes. They were, they were sinners just like us. But Lord, we thank you for the sinless sacrifice of Jesus washes away our sins, gives us righteousness that was never our own. Lord, thank you for a good church. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for time to put the two together. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.